Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 7th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fultz, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The California Attorney General announced that over 90% of eligible California cities and counties have signed on to a historic $26 billion settlement with the nation's three major pharmaceutical distributors, Cardinal, McKesson, Amersource Bergen, and Johnson & Johnson, over the company's role in creating and fueling the nationwide opioid crisis. Over 400 cities and counties in California, representing 97% of the state's population, have signed on to the settlement. When finalized, the settlement will resolve the claims of both states and local governments across the country, including the nearly 4,000 that have filed lawsuits in federal and state courts. The settlement also requires significant industry changes that will help prevent this type of crisis from ever happening again. The settlement comes as a result of investigations by state attorneys general and of whether the three distributors fulfilled their legal duty to refuse to ship opioids to pharmacies that submitted su suspicious drug orders and whether Johnson & Johnson misled patients and doctors about the addictive nature of opioid drugs. Cardinal, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and Johnson & Johnson will have until February 25th to decide whether to move forward with the settlement. If all parties agree, the first payments will be made by the distributors starting this April. California continues to fight to hold Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family accountable for their contribution to the ongoing opioid crisis. Today's deal also comes on the heels of a previously announced $573 million opioid settlement with McKinsey & Company, which will bring over $59 million to California for opioid abatement. And Johnson & Johnson and three of the nation's largest drug wholesalers and distributors have also agreed to pay $589 million to Native American tribes in settlement, after hundreds of tribes accused the companies of fueling the opioid crisis in their communities. This follows a 2019 lawsuit in which the drug distributors agreed to pay $75 million to resolve similar claims made by Cherokee Nation, one of the largest Cherokee tribes recognized by the federal government. A 2016 report released by the National Congress of American Indians found that American Indians suffered the highest rate of opioid overdoses, followed by whites. An attorney for the tribes reported that all 574, 574 federally recognized tribes will be able to receive money from the settlements even if they had not filed any of the lawsuits. A WCAB panel decision clarifies the date of injury in continuous trauma cases. In the new panel decision of Perez versus Comprehensive Blood and Cancer Center, the WCAB was required to discuss an analysis of the correct date of injury in a continuous trauma case as well as the correct period for imposition of liability 
upon the industrial carriers. In this case, the carrier unsuccessfully attempted to raise several theories that would shift liability to a period either before or after the last day of employment, which dated back to 2012. The applicant, Maria, excuse me, Maricela Perez, was 35 years old and employed as a radiology technician at Bakersfield by Comprehensive Blood and Cancer Center during a period of time ended, ending back on July 3, 2012. That's nearly 10 years ago. It was found that she sustained injury in the form of an intracranial meningioma. The opinion on decision indicates that the work comp judge believed the date of injury to be January 16, 2020, the date of the first report from David Baum, M.D., the internal medical panel QME. The panel pointed out that the date of injury for cumulative trauma claims is that date upon which the employee first suffered disability therefrom, and either knew or in the exercise of reasonable diligence should have known that such disability was caused by his present or prior employment. In turn, liability for a cumulative injury is limited to those employers who employed the employee during a period of one year immediately preceding either the date of injury or, and I emphasize or, the last date on which the employee was employed in an occupation exposing him or her to the hazards of the occupational disease or cumulative injury, whichever occurs first. Thus, although the period of liability for cumulative trauma claims is limited to the last year of injury's exposure, the actual date of injury may be different than the applicant's last date of work. The date of cumulative injury is the date of employee first suffers a disability and has reason to know the disability is work-related. This is the date that sets the benefit rates and timing and availability of benefits. Disability has been defined by case law as an impairment of bodily functions which results in the impairment of earnings capacity. The disability can be either temporary or permanent. Here, the applicant filed an application for adjudication of claim seeking benefits for industrial injury in 2019. Therefore, her date of knowledge is no later than the date of the application which she filed. However, Dr. Baum stated that the carcinogenic, carcinogenic potential of ionizing radiation is additive. The exposure at the podiatrist's office initiated the processes which eventuated the meningioma 15 years later but it was hastened by six years of more intense exposure as an assistant radiation therapist at her last employer. Therefore, the last, <clears throat> the last year of injurious occupation exposure ended on July 3, 2012, and predates the date of injury. In this case, the defendant attempted to raise several alternative theories that would shift liability to a period either before or after the year ending July 3, 2012. But they showed no evidence in the record in support of this assertion.
Pharmaceutical distributor Cardinal Health has entered into a settlement agreement to pay more than $13 million to resolve allocations in a civil case that it violated the federal anti-kickback statute by paying upfront discounts to its physician practice customers. The company is an American multinational healthcare services company and the 14th highest revenue generating company in the United States. It provides medical products to over 75% of the hospitals in the U.S. The federal anti-kickback statute prohibits pharmaceutical distributors from offering or paying any compensation to induce physicians to purchase drugs for use on their on Medicare patients. When a pharmaceutical distributor sells drugs to a physician practice for administration in an outpatient setting, the distributor may legally offer commercially available discounts to its customers under certain circumstances. But upfront discount arrangements present significant kickback concerns unless they are tied to specific purchases and that distributors maintain appropriate controls to ensure that discounts are clawed back if the purchaser ultimately does not purchase enough product to earn the discount. Well, Cardinal Health failed to meet these requirements because the upfront discounts it provided to its customers were not attributable to identifiable sales or were purported rebates which Cardinal Health's customers had not actually earned. Cardinal Health paid the physician practices in advance of the physician practices purchase of pharmaceuticals from the company, and these payments either were not attributable to identifiable sales of products or were purported rebates that the customers had not actually earned. Cardinal Health also entered into a separate settlement agreement with the Medicaid participating states. The Federal False Claims Act settlements resolve allegations originally brought in lawsuits filed by whistleblowers who will receive about $2.6 million of the recovery for their effort. And now our crime report. Sam Sarkis Salakian, the CEO of several Southern California-based medical imaging companies, was sentenced to 60 months in federal prison for running a scheme that submitted more than $250 million in fraudulent claims through the California Workers' Compensation System. These were for medical services procured through bribes and kickbacks to physicians and others. He was also ordered to pay nearly $30 million in restitution to the victim insurers. During an eight-day trial that concluded last July, a jury found Salakian guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit honest services mail fraud and health care fraud, and 11 counts of honest services mail fraud. Federal prosecutors had sought more than 15 years in prison. Their sentencing memorandum said that Salakian paid $9 million in kickbacks in order to generate over a quarter to a quarter of a billion dollars in fraudulent medical billings, the vast majority of which were for MRIs that were totally medically unnecessary. 
They also said Salakian devised and through his kickbacks fueled a cross-referral scheme that incentivized doctors to herd patients to physicians who overprescribed ancillary services in exchange for cash and other economic benefits. But Salakian's lawyers had asked for a prison term of no more than six months. They said that Salakian had come with his family to California as refugees from Armenia when he was a boy and had become the main provider for his family by the time he was 17. His lawyers also cited Salakian's trauma for sexual abuse as a child, his mental health issues, marital problems, and his drug addiction in their request for leniency. Salakian was the CEO of several medical imaging companies, including the Glendale-based Vital Imaging Incorporated and San Diego MRI Institute, and he operated diagnostic imaging facilities throughout California, including the Bay Area, Los Angeles, Orange Counties, and San Diego. In total, Salakian submitted and caused to be submitted more than $250 million in claims for medical services procured through the payment of these bribes and kickbacks. And in regulatory news, on January 25, Governor Newsom, along with Senate President Pro Tem Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, announced they reached an agreement on a framework to ensure California employees have continued access to supplemental COVID-19 paid sick leave through September 30, 2022. The proposed law will apply to employers with 26 or more employees. This is similar to the 2021 COVID paid sick leave law. Full-time employees will be entitled to 40 hours of paid leave due to COVID-19 and an additional 40 hours of paid leave upon showing proof that they or a family member have tested positive for the virus. Under the 2021 COVID paid sick leave plan, full-time employees were entitled to up to 80 hours of supplemental paid sick leave. The framework agreement provides that employers will have to pay for the tests, but it is unclear whether this covers tests for the employee only or includes testing for their family members. The leave will be retroactive to any time off beginning January 1, 2022. This retroactivity is similar to the 2021 COVID benefit. The, the leave program will expire on September 30, 2022. While details of this are still being worked out, California employers should be aware that the state will likely reinstate COVID-19 paid sick leave, similar in many ways to the 2021 COVID sick leave law. However, employers should be aware that legislation to implement the framework deal is not yet in place, and they should therefore keep current on the law that is likely to be implemented. In California and seven other states and Washington, D.C., by law, some hourly workers have to be compensated if they report to work only to have their shift cut short. But, according to a University of California Davis study, 
Some hourly workers may not be receiving this pay, and if they are not, it's often on the employees to call attention to the law. Reporting pay policies require employers to pay workers for some portion or even all of their shift if they report to work, but the employer ends their shift much earlier than scheduled. California and several other states that have such laws and most of the policies require that the employee be paid their normal wage or minimum wage for some or all of the shifts cut short by employers. Ryan Finnegan, an associate professor of sociology and the lead author of this article published in the journal Social Forces, found that the enforcement process for these kinds of policies really need to improve for them to be effective. In his nationwide survey of over 1,000 hourly workers distributed in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., only 4% knew they were covered by such a law, and only 17% of supervisors responding said they were aware of laws in their jurisdictions. The survey showed that 37% of employees had experienced shift cuts in recent months, and that only a quarter of them reported usually or always receiving compensation for a cut shift. Cut shifts can substantially reduce hourly workers' total earnings and increase earnings instability. For example, if retail workers experiencing one six-hour shift cut relative to their average 30-hour work week lose 20% of their weekly earnings. Last-minute shift changes are most common among retail and food service workers. California's push to create the country's first single-payer health care system dissolved quietly late Monday, as the bill's author, Assemblyman Ash Calra, canceled a scheduled vote due to a presumed lack of support in the state assembly. Calra acknowledged he was unable to wrangle enough votes before a key legislative deadline, citing substantial misinformation from a group of well-funded opponents. Nonetheless, Calra claimed there's still a viable path to universal health care in the nation's most populous state. California voters rejected a universal health care initiative back in 1994, and lawmakers most recently snubbed the idea in 2017 due to a lack of funding. But the single-payer vision has once again leapt back into the Golden State's political agenda. It was AB 1400 coined the Guaranteed Health Care for All Act, which proposed a single-payer program to be administered and overseen by a new state agency known as CalCare. After CalRA reintroduced the bill this month, two committees quickly signed off, setting up a presumed showdown on the assembly floor. The supporters, including the California Nurses Association and cities like San Jose's Sacramento and Long Beach jumped behind the effort. Proponents said the switch to universal health care would trim existing administrative costs, coalesce the state's buying power, and reduce labor union strikes that often stem from disputes over health care benefits. 
but the daunting price tag likely derailed the latest version, as was the case with past single-payer attempts. According to the most recent estimates, adopting single-payer could cost between $314 and $391 billion annually. Further, if the federal government signed off and contributes to California's transformation, the state would still have to come up with at least $158 billion to launch AB 1400 had it gone through. To help fund the transition, supporters proposed raising taxes on businesses and residents through an accompanying ballot measure. They said the tax heights paled in comparison to the overall $400 billion Californians currently pay on health care and that single-payer would save the state money in the long run. But a coalition of critics consisting of hospital groups, insurers, and the GOP lined up to fight the idea of government-run health care, casting it as the largest tax increase in state history. Adding to the intrigue was whether Governor Gavin Newsom would get behind the single-payer push or the corresponding tax hike during an election year. Pundits predict several tight congressional races this year and expect California to factor heavily into who takes control of the House in 2023. Newsom, who promised to pursue a single-payer system on the campaign trail in 2018, declined to endorse AB 14 at er at this early stage in the legislative process. By abandoning Monday's vote, Calra freed Assembly Democrats and Governor Gavin Newsom from having to take a formal position on the polarizing topic in an election year. California's troubled Unemployment Benefits Department will soon have its third director in the past two years. Governor Newsom announced the appointment of Nancy Farias as director of the EDD, filling the role held by outgoing director Rita Sains. Director Sains will continue to serve the administration by reserving her role as a commissioner on the California Commission on Aging. Nancy Farias has served as chief deputy director of external affairs, legislation, and policy at the California EDD since 2020. Prior to that, Farias was Director of Government Relations at the SEIU Local 1000 Union from 2017 to 2020, and she was Deputy Chief of Staff in the office of Senator Henry Stern from 2016 to 2017, and District Director at the office of Assemblymember Mike Gatto from 2015 to 2016. Sainz was appointed by Newsom back in 2020 to help turn the department around. This after it was dealing with a record number of unemployment claims, as well as fraud claims. Since the pandemic, EDD has been dealing with fraud, long waiting times, and frozen accounts, among other issues. Outgoing director Rita Sainz led the California Department of Social Services in early 2000s, and is former executive with Xerox Corporation. She came out of retirement to lead the department in 2021 when it was plagued by fraud and a backlog of payments. Since then, the agency has received 
26.4 million claims and has paid $180 billion in benefits. But about $20 billion of those payments went to scammers who posed as prison inmates, and in one instance posed as U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein to fool Senate officials into sending them checks. The department recently uncovered another fraud scheme as scammers were posing as doctors to trick state officials into issuing them disability checks. As the director, Sains sought to implement 21 recommendations from the California State Auditor. But the department has only implemented five of those recommendations so far, while the rest are in various stages of implementation. In a memo announcing her resignation, Sains said she had only planned to stay with the department for a short time. Also, Governor Newsom has appointed Jeffrey Killip, Chief of the Division of Occupational Safety and Health at the California Department of Industrial Relations. Mr. Killip has served as Acting Deputy Assistant Director of the Division of Occupational Safety and Health at the Washington State Department of Labor and Industries since 2021. And in medical news... Predictive modeling by Scripps Health shows that the current surge of COVID-19 hospitalizations should wind down by early March. The San Diego Health System announced this on last Monday. While it certainly is good news for the San Diego region, health system officials said staffing demands at Scripps facilities will remain high as hospitals stay busy with cases unrelated to covid and as other patients reschedule procedures that were deferred during the ongoing pandemic surge. Scripps president and CEO said they are finally seeing some light at the end of the tunnel for the Omicron surge, but added that this pandemic likely is not ending. Scripps data experts have been using sophisticated and complex computer modeling of the virus in San Diego County since April 2020 to better plan for the use of staffing and critical resources such as intensive care, beds, medical surgical beds, and personal protective equipment. The accuracy level of the modeling has been extremely high, running in the low to mid-90% range during all three of the major COVID surges the Alpha variant in the winter of 2020, the Delta variant in the summer of 2021, and the current Omicron variant, which arrived this winter. And the Los Angeles Times reports that the ranks of the LAPD have rebounded after a massive surge in coronavirus cases in recent weeks. The number of officers out sick or quarantining dropped from 1,333 last week to just 362 this week. LAPD Chief Michael Morse said the recovery is a welcome shift ahead of major deployments planned for the upcoming Super Bowl. At the peak of the Omicron variant surge last month, LAPD saw more than 600 new cases in a single week and more than 1,000 over a two-week period. But those numbers have decreased significantly with only 290 new coronavirus cases in the past week, 
Of those, 132 were among vaccinated officers. And finally, in other news, last year, Mitchell, Genex, and Coventry announced the creation of their new parent brand, Enlight. And the new brand, Enlight, just released its new report on 2022 predictions for the workers' compensation sector. As we enter 2022, still mired in the COVID-19 pandemic, they say the workers' compensation industry faces another challenging year with payers continuing to cope with staffing shortages, evolving regulatory changes, and much more. Staffing shortages throughout the country will affect a wide range of employers, including insurance carriers and other claim organizations, who are facing this challenge as well. The authors anticipates the insurance industry will turn to technology, especially automation, to help fill some of the gaps and to reduce the risk associated with high turnover rates and onboarding new employees who have less industry experience than their predecessors. And they say the mental health conversation will continue throughout the year. Studies have shown the likelihood of injured employees being treated for depression are 45% greater than non-injured counterparts. And getting hurt on the job can increase the risk of mental hardship, so they say having access to behavioral health specialists and workers' compensation is no longer a nice-to-have, it's a must-have. Automation, claim staff efficiency, will be at the forefront as workers' compensation payers continue to navigate challenges they are facing due to COVID-19, Enlight anticipates many companies will focus on boosting claims staff efficiency through automation, outsourcing, technology, and other tools in 2022. They predict the pandemic will continue to strain hospitals and providers. Shortages combined with burnout among clinicians worn down by nearly two years of operating in full-time triage mode limit the ability of some hospitals to offer the best care possible. Already, some non-urgent surgeries and other essential services are being postponed to accommodate COVID-19 patients. And the report points out that federal regulatory and legislative changes will trickle down to workers' compensation. This year, the federal government will undertake major discussions on health-related topics, including telemedicine and marijuana, and that could have significant effects for the workers' compensation industry. And in addition to the major initiatives happening at the federal level, there are a few other top-of-the-mind state issues for 2022. While COVID-19-related regulatory changes, such as presumptions and vaccine mandates, will continue to take precedence, many state legislatures are playing catch-up on the initiatives they had on the docket ahead of the pandemic. Drug price transparency will be a focus, and opioid and addiction concerns will also continue. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, 
your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.